Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Devin Olson, and he'll be answering your questions on competitive fly fishing. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Devin a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column on the home page. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of the broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc. Doing business is asked about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Devin Olson about competitive fly fishing. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than just a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. Before we introduce Devin, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. And for our drawing, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for that link under Devin's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Devin's latest book, Tactical Fly Fishing, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So here's how you can win Devin's book. You must be the first person to answer the question or questions. I sometimes put two-part questions in at the end of the show. And um, the question will be about something Devin and I talk about during the show. So just submit your answer along with your name and location in that text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills. Take notes, and maybe you'll win Devin's brand-new book, A Tactical Fly Fishing. Our guest tonight is Devin Olson. Devin started fly fishing at age nine. He will never forget his first day where he caught a cutthroat on an ant in the first meadow of the famed Slough Creek in Yellowstone on a hand-me-down fiberglass seven-weight. Though he had been fishing with hardware since he was a toddler, that day started an addiction to fly fishing that he can't seem to shake. When he fished against Lance Egan and Ryan Barnes in the former Outdoor Life Network's Fly Fishing Masters in 2004, he knew he had to find a way to compete in the sport he loved. It was serendipitous that he worked with both of these anglers a year later when they had made Fly Fishing Team USA. He fished in his first regional and made the team himself in 2006. The ensuing years have been more educational than he could have ever imagined and is as hopelessly obsessed with fly fishing today as he's ever been. 
The obsession brought dedication, which has helped him have competitive success domestically and abroad. In the year 2006 marked his eighth consecutive birth as an angler for Fly Fishing Team USA in the 36th Phipps Moosh World Fly Fishing Championships in Bayo, Colorado. The year prior in Bosnia, he was incredibly fortunate to finish with an individual bronze medal and even more fortunate to have been part of the squad that won the first team medal of silver for USA at a World Fly Fishing Championship. In 2006, they followed that feat with a team bronze. Uh, fly fishing competitions have exposed him to tactics and techniques from incredible teammates to fellow flyingers from across, across the globe. Away from competitive fishing, fish have sculpted his professional life as well. He holds a bachelor's degree in ecology and a master's degree in fishery science. He currently works for the Nez Perce Tribe Department of Fisheries Resource Management as a salmon and steelhead biologist. Well, Devin, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks, Roger. I know. <laughs> it sounds it's like I should have you. sent you an updated bio because I have yeah. I've had a few things happen <laughs> since that one. <laughs> yeah, send that to us and we'll get it updated on the, on the site for sure. Well, do. Um, <laughs> yeah, lots of things have probably happened, and you can kind of fill us in on that in a few minutes uh, after we, we get through a few questions here. So um, sounds good. Um, hey, we've got a ton of questions here, and so – Tonight I wanted to do two things, kind of educate people on what competitive fly fishing is all about. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, and, and misunderstandings, so hopefully we can clear that up. And for those that are thinking about participating in it, I want you to help them out as well and, uh, you know, give them some information. And, you know, then we'll spend uh, the rest of the show talking about some techniques and, and things that you've learned and, and applied from the, the competitions that you've been in. So... That's kind of the lay of the land for tonight. So let's start out with um, a couple of questions here, one from Phil McCartney and, uh, in California, Kentucky, and one from Bruce in Virginia. Uh, I'll kind of blend these together. Phil asks, uh, he says, I've been fortunate enough to have benefited from the generosity of other fishermen who have shared their knowledge with me and enhanced my enjoyment of the sport. I imagine that these competitions tend to undermine the otherwise – the, the typical gener generous nature of fly fishing. Please tell us about how these competitions advance the sport. And then Bruce wrote in, he says, really, competition fly fishing, winning? I don't understand. So help, help, uh, help Bruce to understand and, uh, and tell Phil a bit about how this has advanced the, the, the sport. Okay. Well, so the interesting thing uh, as to, to Phil's question is that you'd think uh, from the outside looking in that it would be, you know, kind of a secretive uh, band of brothers, you know, I'm going to guard all my, my techniques and my flies, my secret type of world. But competitive fly fishing overall has actually been the opposite for me. Uh, one of the greatest parts about it has been the camaraderie that, that develops between anglers and also the willingness that, that most of them have to share at least once the competition is done. Um, it is true that, you know, during practice or during the competition itself, um, most people want to protect the things that they're, themselves and their teammates have learned so that you hopefully can maintain a competitive edge at least during the tournament but then afterwards once it's all said and done most people are very willing to open up and talk about exactly what they did the techniques they use the flies they use things like that so really a lot uh what we'll talk about you know i think through the rest of the night is so much of what i've learned it hasn't just come from me you know having my own uh 
epitomes through practice and things like that. A lot of it has been secondhand through other competitors who have uh, been willing to share. So I would say that that's really how it has advanced the sport. Uh, if you think about uh, someone like George Daniel, for those of you who've listened to any of his you know, uh, shows here on Ask About Fly Fishing or read his book Dynamic Nymphing or or now his others that have come out. Dynamic nipping wouldn't have happened if George wasn't uh, a competitor who fished with Team USA. And I, I would say that that book has been pretty important for advancing the sport for a lot of people. So that's just one example. Uh, and then as far as Bruce's question goes, um, I think it's always funny that um, competitive fly fishing seems like such a reach for some people. And I completely understand that it's not for everybody. Um, it is a stressful experience during much of it, and which seems sort of antithetical to what uh, most of us are out on the stream for uh, on a daily basis. But for me, it all boils down to um, giving myself a measuring stick and motivation to move my own angling ability forward. If you think about competition in any sport or any pursuit, uh, whether it's business or anything else, uh, really what makes things go leaps and bounds forward is some sort of competition, whether it's competition for the marketplace or competition in a sport, uh, you know, for winning a, a game or whatever. It's the developments that happen from competitors trying to get an edge that really make things move forward. And that has certainly happened through competitive fly fishing for me and for many of the other anglers that uh, they compete in it and it's also just a, a really exciting thing for me it's about as close as I get to having an extreme sport that I can go get an adrenaline rush and it, it really is a unique thing where you go through all sorts of human emotions that you might not go through otherwise and sometimes in the spaces a day <laughs> from, from, uh, from a horror to ecstasy and in between <laughs> yeah and I, you know any anytime you compete in anything um I think it, it tends to, to give you, like, laser focus, you know, of Absolutely. You know, blocking out the, whatever else is happening in the world, and there's one thing that you need to focus on, whether whether it's golf or fly fishing or, or you know, um, who knows, acrobatic kite flying, <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah. it's just that you've got to focus on what you're doing, and, and that gives you a totally different perspective, I imagine. Um, well, and when you boil what, it down in, in the fly fishing end of things, if you think about it, at the root cause of it, I mean, fly fishing is basically a competition between you and the fish to begin with to see who can dupe the other. Right, and exactly. So I think it, it, whether it seems that way on the outside or not, it's built into the framework of the sport, uh, whether it's between you and the fish or you and your buddy when, you you know, someone has a competition for the biggest fish or the first fish or the most fish for the day and, you know, that person buys dinner or the beers or whatever, you know, I think right. – uh, maybe not an official way, but uh, there's a lot of competition that happens on your local stream pretty much every day. Oh, yeah, yeah. When did you start fly fishing competitively, and what made you start? Um, well, it was back in 2004, as, as uh, you read in my bio, and I first fished. Well, actually, what happened was I was watching the OLN, which was, the Outdoor Life Network way back when and is now NBC Sports after a couple of iterations. But um, back then they had a, a program called the Fly Fishing Masters. And it was essentially just a reality TV show that was a competitive uh, fly fishing show. And I saw it when I was a senior in high school uh, in 2003, and I thought, oh, wow, that 
that looks like something I would really like to do. Um, and so the next year, I saw, I think I was either watching the program again or heard through the grapevine anyway that they were having another round of it. And so I uh, grabbed a partner, the only only guy I thought who would be interested, who could cast well enough to get into the fishing portion with me. And uh, we went to Oregon and competed in the Western Regional they had there for that show. And when I was there, I'm, I, I already knew Lance Egan from the local shop that he worked at. But I, I met him and, and his partner, Ryan Barnes, at the, the tournament, and we ended up competing. I can't remember if we fished directly against them or not, but certainly during the casting rounds, we were competing directly to get into the fishing. And, and I was just so excited by the whole experience. Then the next year, I ended up working with both of them at a, at a fly shop. And they were both uh, on Fly Fishing Team USA, and they just kind of got me interested in, in trying to compete for Team USA as well. And so I started learning all the techniques that it took to, to do so under the different uh, rules framework that was very foreign to what I was doing at the time, and kind of the rest is all history from there. So uh, did uh, Lance and Ryan serve as your mentors at the at the beginning? Yeah, certainly. Um and then Lance, I, I would say, uh, you know, is still uh, one at this point for, I don't know how many years we've been at this now. Uh, I've been at it 13 years. Lance probably four or five years longer than me. Um, and we've been, you know, teammates for so long that really it's just more of a, a teammate-type relationship and has been for, you know, a decade plus right. now. But certainly in those early years meant much of what I – gleaned and grasped were things that Lance had already been working on. So I, I definitely owe a lot to to him for a lot of the discoveries I've made through the years. And, you know, a lot of my other teammates, too, it, I, don't, I don't know if you call it specifically a mentor-type relationship, since there wasn't necessarily a, a senior and junior type of situation, but many of my teammates are people that I've learned with over the years and really uh, taken a lot from the new approaches and different things they've come up with, which were totally out of <laughs> out of uh, what my thought process was. So guys like Pat Weiss and um, Josh Grafham and even uh, some of the earlier guys that I fished with, like George and uh, Pete Erickson. Um So, yeah, lots of good teammates who's, who've mentored and or at least uh, helped me learn a lot through the sure. years. What... Uh... What were some of your first competitions like, or what type of competition? You just mentioned the first one going to Oregon, uh, and then the next thing you talked about was Fly Fishing Team USA. Did you jump right over to Fly Fishing Team USA, or did you do other local types of competitions to get prepared? Uh, there wasn't anything in between, mainly just because I didn't know of anything that was available. Um, so I did the Oregon thing in, for OLN in 2004, and then in 2005, that's when I found out about Team USA. I didn't know about it before then. So I started practicing some techniques, and then in 2006, um, Lance and Ryan uh, organized a regional in Utah for fly fishing Team USA in the spring of that year. And so I qualified at that regional to make it to the national championship that year and uh, made the team that year and has been uh, continually – qualifying uh, in the year since to maintain my spot. Okay. Now, uh, you said, that, you know, that you went to a regional first for fly t- fishing 
Team USA that mm-hmm. they had organized. So is there a, a ladder of qualifications that fly fishers go through to begin to, to try to qualify for Fly Fishing Team USA? Yes, it's quite a bit different now than it was when I first started. We've uh, really refined the system compared to what it was to begin with. But um, So now the way things work is you go to a regional. Um, so there's a uh, there are regional qualifiers that get announced usually at least three months beforehand, two to three months uh, ahead of time. And you enter in one of those, and they are open, although a lot of times there's a lot of people trying to get into them, so it can be hard at first. Um, depending upon where you're at. But uh, so you go to that regional and you try, you know, people who are serious about trying to make the team, uh, you try and go to at least three regionals in a two-year span because we have a nationals every other year. And that forms the cycle, uh, so a point cycle. And you get points for going to each one of those regionals based on your finish. And uh, when it comes to going into nationals, the top three competitions that you had during that cycle count towards your point total. And the, the top 50 point getters for that two-year cycle get an invitation to the national championship. And then um, from within the people that are nationals at the end, that also, you know, the national championship also adds points to that point total. And at the end of that whole national championship uh, and the cycle, the top 15 people uh, by points make fly fishing team overall, or Team USA overall. So there's 15 guys from across the country that are on the team. But then from within those 15 people, there's six of us that uh, go to the world championship each year. And as far as that works, the top three point getters at Nationals get an automatic bid to be one of those six. And then the next three people are voted on from within the body of the new uh, 15 team members that uh, that make the team that year. So that it's it's not a given that you're going to be on the team next year if you were on last year. You have to qualify every year? Yes. If you make the team at, at Nationals, then you're going to be on the team for two years um, because there isn't another Nationals for, you know, another two years after that. But, yes, you have to qualify at each during each cycle um, at each Nationals. If you haven't put in the work and the time and, and gotten the results, then, yeah, you won't you won't remake the team. And likewise, it's not a given just because you've been on the international team before that you'll go again if you qualify. It's still top five. Yeah, not at all. Um, yeah, okay. Most of the guys that, you know, have, have gotten to that point, um, as long as they go to a, enough regionals, uh, they're at a level where they, you know, normally will qualify. But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it certainly certainly can happen that you won't remake it. Um, thankfully, we have you know, a pretty dedicated group of guys that are at the top that uh, keep on the steam and yeah. and have been consistent. Yeah. Now, um, you know, from those, those early competitions, I, I know you've learned a, a ton, especially in techniques or so forth, but what did you learn from maybe a personal or uh, emotional or uh, personal management level that um, – you got from fishing in those competitions, you know, not not about your own nymphing, but um, sure, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, I remember the first that first regional that I did back in 2006. The night before, I was so just mentally jacked up that I slept maybe a half an hour. I was just 
I was a ball of anxiety. <laughs> it was crazy. I, I don't think I've had a worse night of sleep in my entire life. And I got to the river, and I, you know, I obviously did not feel very good uh, after that night. And my hands were shaking so bad during my prep time that I couldn't even tie knots. It, was, it took me, you know, quite a few minutes to, to calm down. And then it was funny, uh, about 10 minutes into the session, I, had, I landed my first couple of fish, and then it, after that I just kind of got into the groove and, uh, you know, did fine. I ended up winning that session, and uh, after that, uh, my nerves certainly backed off. And so over the years, I've learned, you know, some anxiety management when it comes to these things. But also I've just learned uh, what it takes to be prepared, um, how to, to go about those preparations, not just like the night before, but, you know, in the months before, um, the weeks before, and then during your practice time so that you are and uh, as prepared and you feel as prepared as possible because if you feel prepared, then – you can go out there and just perform instead of worry about, you know, what you're missing. Uh, so, you know, that's been a, a big one for me. I've also, um, it's forced me to kind of delve into the wor- world of sports psychology a little bit and uh, just to try and get a hold of the mental side of things because so much of, of the competition side is mental and not just the things that you go through on the water, but but uh, how your brain and, and your, your body is feeling beforehand. So I've studied that a little bit to try and uh, make things easier <laughs> on myself during the, the tournaments, and that's helped a lot. Yeah, yeah, the mental game is a big thing in, in whatever you do competitively, that's for sure. Um, okay, let's take a quick break here, and uh, when we return we'll be talking uh, more with Devin about uh, competitive fly fishing and some of the techniques he's learned and, and applied to his, his everyday fly fishing. So. Stick with us, and we'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as an unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick boats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Devin Olson about competitive fly fishing. If you'd like to ask Devin a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll see, receive your question immediately, and we will try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. But Devin, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world, and I know uh, getting this book on the shelves uh, in, all over the world, uh, tactical fly fishing is Definitely been top of the list for you, probably. Um, so tell us about this new book, how it came about, what's in it, and why people should buy it. Yeah, so a few years back, um, uh, right about the time I probably wrote that bio, <laughs> uh, I started uh, a business called Tactical Fly Fisher, and uh, it's now my full-time job. And so pretty much it's an, you know an online resource for gear and fly tying and everything else kind of driven by the competitive world. Um, 
but for everyday anglers. And uh, as part of that, I have a blog, and um, my editor, Jay Nichols, was uh, reading some of the posts I had originally, and, and uh, he already knew about me from, from George Daniel uh, when George mentioned me in, in Dynamic Nipping way back when. And so uh, Jay contacted me and just kind of asked if I'd be interested in writing a book, and, and uh, you know, I, that wasn't a, an opportunity I, I could turn down. <laughs> so basically what I, came out of it, originally I was thinking of writing a, a Euro Nipping specific book, but thankfully Jay pushed me to go a little further, and um, what ended up uh, coming out of it instead is more of a, a book uh, that's, just kind of taking a, a tactical angling approach, having a, you know, sort of a system uh, for when you hit the water and even beforehand to prepare yourself and make observations and do things that will really inform the way that you fish the water in front of you that day. And uh, so it's kind of getting into the mind of being at least having strategies that come out of competition and how you can apply that as an everyday angler, you know, whether you're competing or not, and then hopefully uh, – have some more success for you. Yeah, yeah. Now, you you also had, um, before the book, you had published uh, several DVDs as well on your own MP. Yeah, mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, my teammate Lance Egan and I, um, our friend Gilbert Rowley, uh, filmed and, and edited two instructional films for us. Uh, the first one's called Modern Nymphing, European Inspired Techniques, and then so that's kind of like a foundational European nymphing video uh, that will get you going with the method. And then we also um, filmed a second one called Modern Nymphing Elevated Beyond the Basics, and that's meant to be kind of like a master class now that you've, you know, tried European nymphing and are at a certain level. How can you take it to the next level? Um, and actually that's one of the things that we're uh, now going to be working on this spring. And in uh, March we'll be shooting another one that will try and help uh, – put some video to the book a little bit and bounce off each other to support the text in a, a video format also. That sounds great. Now, um, again, your website is drop the uh, domain. Tacticalflyfisher.com. Tacticalflyfisher.com. So, and uh, we do have his new book, Tactical Fly Fishing, on our homepage there in the right-hand column, so you can get it from Amazon if you want to get it there, uh, or go to Tactical Fly Fisher and, uh, and also order uh, Devin's DVDs as well. Um, Jim Lewis in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, just wrote in on the Internet. Uh, he says, do you offer any Euro-nymphing clinics? Uh, well, I used to do some guiding, um, but the, the site has gotten busy enough now that uh, that's not a possibility for me anymore. So I do do some clinics occasionally for clubs and things like that. Um, and at some of the shows, like and I will be doing one for the Wasatch Expo that's coming up here in April, which that's not too far from, from Jackson for you, Jim. So if uh, you wanted to come down to the Expo, um, you could probably try and get in either my clinic or I know Lance uh, and maybe even George will be back out doing similar clinics again as well. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Well, that kind of fills us in. And you've been doing the show circuit too, right? There, I know you were. Yep. Been, been at the fly fishing show, um, done a couple of those, and then I'm uh, on the road a lot at clubs for the, well, at least until June. Yeah. And then yeah. starting up again in the fall. Well, good for you. Good for you. Keeping busy. Yeah. Well, um, tell us a, a bit about um, some of these international competitions you were in. Maybe some highlights of, uh, you know, super hard or challenging experiences. Uh, 
you know, uh, based upon locations or that kind of kind of highlight a couple of those for us so we can get sure. a feel for what you're walking into. Yeah, so so last year in Italy was my 10th uh, World Fly Fishing Championship. Um, and let's see, I've been to, I got to rattle them off in my head. So the first one was in Scotland, then I was in Poland, then I was in Italy in a slightly different area, um, but still northern Italy in the Dolomites. Then uh, Slovenia, uh, Norway, the Czech Republic, Bosnia, Colorado, and then um, Slovakia, and then last year back in Italy again. So those are the country, countries I've been to for the World Championship. Um, and, you know, over the years I've seen all sorts of, of uh, crazy and hard things that, at them, uh, all, you know, many of the years I've walked up to a beat of river that I, uh, I'm fishing, a designated beat, which I think we're probably going to talk about that here in a bit. And you get there and you're like, holy cow, uh, this should not be <laughs> a beat of water that I'm supposed to fish for three hours. I remember one in Poland on the Son River, uh, one of the lower sectors on the Son that I showed up to once where the deepest piece of water in that entire beat was maybe mid-calf. <laughs> and I was just sit, sitting there thinking to myself, how am I going to catch fish out of here? <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I did end up catching one fish out of that beat, and I think it was one of two fish that were caught out of it the whole tournament. And then I've had other things, like in Norway, I, I showed up to a beat on the the uh, Ostervesna River where I, I basically had a lake. It was like a 35-foot-deep giant pool with no backcast room and uh, a cliff that I had to stand on for my entire beat while the, the guy below me had that pot of rising fish and, you know, I was sitting there watching him catch fish on dry flies. <laughs> so you get some challenges with uh, non-traditional water types for, for beats when you uh, show up with them. But I think the, the one highlight for me that I always, kind of my favorite memory is... Uh, well, obviously, you know, when you win medals, you have good memories from it. But in 2015, when we were in Bosnia, we were kind of on waters that most of us didn't expect to do well on, simply because there was a lot of spring creeks and, and you know, flat techie-type fishing, which uh, most of the members on the team were are from the west. And, um, you know, we're used to high-gradient mountain-type rivers and tailwaters and things like that. Um, so spring freak fishing in Bosnia wasn't really up our our normal alley, but we just went about it in a typical way and, and, and figured some things out and figured the lake out, which helps. But then I, I went into the last session during that tournament, and I was in first place. And um, I knew that uh, if I got beat one through ten, probably, I was going to be world champion because beats one through ten on the Sanitza River in the last session, uh, those beats had been kicking out all the high numbers on that, that river, and um, pretty much just by being there, I, I would have had a good enough shot that I probably could have kept my lead. But, you know, as the bus was driving by and they were telling us, uh, they announced on the PA system on the bus once you get to the venue, you know, which beat you're going to. And so they announced, you know, 1 through 10, and my name wasn't called, and then they went 10 through 15, and my name wasn't called, and then it made it to 20 and 25, and, and I think, I was on beat 26 or 27 out of 28 beats. And pretty much in that river, the further downstream you went or, the, you know, to the higher numbered beats, the less fish there were. <laughs> and so I was like two beats from the end going, all right, well, um, I'm going to be lucky just to hold on to a medal. 
So I, you know, came up with a plan once I got there, just fished my guts out, um, ended up getting almost all of my fish on dry flies and inches of water and weeds on, in that session. And uh, my favorite memory of the whole thing is I was at the top of my beat with two minutes left, and I there was some water up there that looked good but just wasn't producing fish for me, so I made the decision with two minutes left to just sprint to the bottom of my beat. So I did my best Usain Bolt impression and uh, got to the top of the water where I had been catching fish earlier in the session and just started firing off rapid-fire dry fly casts basically into every little weed pocket that I had caught a fish out of before. And with uh, 30 seconds left, uh, a little brown trout rose and sipped in my ant, and somehow I had the patience to, to wait to set the hook and put them in the net, and I did the math afterwards, and, and that's the fish that gave me a bronze medal. Um, without that fish, I was in fourth place. So oh, that's boy. kind of my favorite memory out of all of them. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's quite the memory. Yeah. Probably the most important nine-inch brown trout I'll ever catch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> picture it in your mind forever, yeah. Um, how do they determine the beats? Is it random or what, a drawing or what do you – Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the, the organizers set the beats beforehand, so they'll walk the river and they'll stake it out. And technically you're supposed to – provide equal holding water but that's a pretty darn hard thing to do especially at a world championships when you have 25 to 30 beats you gotta put together um but uh normally they're somewhere between 80 and 200 yards long and it all just goes by random draw so uh the way it kind of works is is um when at a world championship or a you know any tournament like that where there's five sessions um there you'll have a five-man team and so one person from each team goes in a group, and that group rotates between all the rivers and lakes that are in the tournament. Uh, they rotate in a certain order, and you fish directly against those people that are in your group uh, during each session, and there's five sessions. And so every session you randomly draw a bead on that river where you get to go fish for your three hours. So it's it's all just computerized. And that's how you end yeah, up. Uh, a lot of people I don't think understand that there are pretty pretty strict restrictions that are placed upon you uh, to compete in these international uh, tournaments. Um, what you want to explain what you can and can't do uh, as far as rigging up and flies and so forth? Oh yeah, okay. So as far as the rules go, you know a lot of what uh, at least nymph fishing wise, a lot of what most people are familiar with in the U.S. certainly or you just simply can't do. Uh, so you can't uh, add split shot or any weight to your leader. Uh, all the weight that you have has to come in your flies. So that's how, you know, beadhead nymphs originally came about. Was that a competition to begin with because of that? And then you can't add anything that floats or sinks your leader. So you can, like, put paste and stuff like, you know, you can add some floatant or something, but you can't add a floating device. So a strike indicator or some sort of su- suspension device is out of, you know, out the door. So no no thingamabobbers and no polyarn. If you're going to use something like that, it has to be a dry fly. So, you know, most of that's, that's why kind of tight line contact uh, nymph methods have come out of the championships. Um, you know, a lot of people will know them as Euro nymphing. So those types of methods have, have arisen pretty much out of that rule set. Um, thankfully, they end up being a lot more successful, actually, in, in many instances. So 
it's kind of been serendipitous for, for those of us who've taken it on. And then if you're going to do some sort of suspension type thing, you got to usually do a dry dropper. So you can use two flies? Yeah, you can use up to three as long as local rules allow, obviously. Uh, okay. For instance, when we were... When we were in Bosnia and in Slovenia, they have a one-fly-only rule there, so we only were able to fish one fly. But but uh, you can fish up to three, you know, flies, barring any local regulations that um, override that. And then the, how are the competitions scored? Well, so going back to what I was talking about before, where you're in that group of anglers, you show up on a river and you fish that river for three hours, and... Um, you and so you pretty much try and catch as many fish as you can most of the time. And there's a formula that combines the size and the number of fish. So you get 100 points for catching a fish, and then you get 20 points for every centimeter of length uh, on top of that for each fish. And so all those points are added at, um, in each session, and whoever gets the most points uh, in each session gets first place. So that's a one placing point, and then on down the line, you know, until the however many competitors. If you don't catch fish at all, then you get the maximum number of points. So if there's 25 guys in the group, then you'll get 25 placing points. And then, so that's one session, but you'll have five of those sessions in a world championship. And so all of those placing points are added up at the end. So if you were to go out there and win every single session, you'd have five placing points at the end. That never happens. (laughs) But... Pretty much guys are ranked from top to bottom at the end of the tournament by those placing points. So whoever has the fewest wins, if there happens to be a tie, then it is broken by the number of fish points that each of those anglers had uh, cumulatively from from each of the sessions. And do you have uh, a monitor assigned to you then to yep. measure and have those fish yep. count? Uh, yeah. So in competition parlance, they call them a controller, and you've got a controller that stays with you on the river, and they make sure you're following the rules, and they uh, measure your fish uh, before you release them and, and record the length and all that. And then, you know, they take care of the uh, the rule following and of things. Mm-hmm. What about, um, you know, a lot of, I assume all these places are places you hadn't fished before. Do you get to practice there the week before, or how do you prepare to fish that, that beat that you're going to fish? Uh, well, you can't practice on the actual competition water itself, so that's usually closed to competitors for 60 days beforehand. Um, but you can practice on any adjacent water that has been set aside for practice. Um, so we will do that. We'll show up usually a week ahead of time and try and get, you know, five, six, seven days of practice beforehand. Sometimes it's pretty helpful, and then other times the water that you practice on is completely different from where the competition is held and so it really doesn't give you much information but but yeah you try and prepare for it if you can but a lot of it ends up being instinct and and just going off of uh, whatever else you can glean during the sessions and one of the things that really helps is is uh our we communicate with each other in between sessions and then at night we have team breakdowns of everything that happened and you know what worked where and what didn't all those types of things and and so your teammate information in between and after sessions is really helpful for later sessions in the tournament. Now, um, it seems to me I read in your book that you were allowed 30 minutes to observe the river before you mm-hmm. started fishing. 
So is that uh, yeah, so plus your three hours, three and a half plus hours? Plus your three hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so when you get to the river, you're supposed to have a minimum of a half an hour to scout the river, set up whatever rigs you want, and make a plan. And then once that bell goes off, you got three hours to fish that, that water, and, and it's go, go, go the whole time. But that this, half an hour time is, is really your, your scouting, your prep, and your, your plan time, so it's really crucial. And um, what do you do in the scouting aspect of that? Uh, are you taking notes or just mentally looking for mentally usually. holding water? Um, or? Mm-hmm. So what I'll typically do, I'll, I'll, I'll make a – when I get to the river, um, these days I, I try and spend as little time – rigging rods as, as I can when I show up to the river. So I normally try and have any of the rods that I might want for the day uh, at least set up to where I have one fly on them so that when I get off the bus, I can just put them together real quick. And if there's something I didn't expect, you know, some water type or some um, hole or whatever that surprises me when I get there, then I can swap, you know, one rig out for whatever I want for that or something or change some tippet lengths. But overall, I want to be able to just, put the rod together and then add whatever extra flies that I might want because what I really like to do is I, I like to spend as much time as I can walking back and forth, um, trying to obviously not spook fish as I do it, but going back and forth, looking at the river from different angles, trying to read water um, from a, a variety of angles so that I identify any of the water holding types that, that I might have and hopefully spot some fish if that's uh, if it's, you know, conditions that allow me to spot fish. Uh, and then I, if I do, then I'll make a, a mental note by landmarks or whatever if I can only see the fish from one angle or something. And uh, based on uh, all the things I observe, then I'll make a plan. And I'll try and give myself a timeline to fish a certain piece of or stretch of water with, you know, technique A, and then the next stretch with, whatever technique is appropriate there. And I try and keep to a timeline so that I can revisit some water if possible. But a lot of times, you know, in session, uh, changes in the fishing end up (laughs) making alterations to that game plan. But it's good to have a game plan to begin with. Are these all public waters that you fish or are they these other? Uh, It depends upon, uh, it depends upon where you're at. Uh, It also depends upon whether even such a thing exists. Like a lot of times in Europe, there is no such thing as public water in places where we go. It's all your, it's all private through some lease through some local club. In the states, it depends. Uh, I would say the a lot of the tournaments that we have are on public water, but uh, sometimes it's on private. Just but the hard thing is that you have to have a a certain amount of water that can support all the beats for a given competition, and so. Uh, you got to have a long enough stretch to do that, and so you, you know it's got to. If it's private, then it's got to be a pretty long stretch of private water within one entity or whatever. Um, but yeah, there's it's a mix, definitely a mix, depending upon whatever is available near where the competition's held. Um, when uh, you go to these competitions, these international competitions, who pays for the travel, the lodging, and the food? How is that covered? Or do you have to pay for it yourself? Well. Um, so anything domestically, anything in the States, all the regionals and things like that, I pay for myself. And then uh, for the last, well, since 2009, we've just had a, an incredible benefactor for the team, 
his name is Jerry Arnold. He's uh, out of Dallas, and he's been a, a really great friend of the team and just made sure that we were financed for the world championships. Um, historically, that was one of our, our biggest holdbacks is that, um, number one, we didn't have a competition system in place, but also really what it boiled down to was how the team was picked was, you know, the the head of the team would call up his buddies who could afford to go, and that's who went to the championships. And then, you know, no surprise, we weren't very successful m- many of those years. Um, yeah. Because a lot of the best anglers aren't necessarily the ones who can afford to to drop five thousand bucks for a world championship every year. So right. uh, because of because of Jerry's help and because of the kind of qualifying system that we have in place now, we've been a lot more successful over the last uh, ten plus years than we were prior to that. If uh, any of our listeners want to uh, compete, how would you suggest they get started? So the easiest thing to do. Um, there's a, a website called flycomps.com that's run by one of the guys on the team named Ken Crane. And it is pretty much the place where all the tournaments uh, around, at least in our format, uh, it's where they're all announced. And then you can also register on that site as well for any of the tournaments. So depending upon where you live and what's feasible, there's a lot of uh, mini tournaments that happen back east. It's not got a strong presence uh, out west, but in, in in a lot of the eastern states, there's a pretty good circuit of mini tournaments um, that you can sign up for there. And then Team USA uh, normally has somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five regionals a year that that get announced. Uh, we just have we just have our our second one of the year was just announced. And uh, I think there's more in the works. Uh, so those regionals are also announced at flycomps.com and also on our team website, um, which I think is just flyfishingteamusa.com. But if not, a quick Google search would, I'm sure, turn it up. We just barely got a brand-new site that can update for us. So um, it's brand-new as of last week, so I haven't really delved into everything that's there. But we announced uh, competitions there, and that's where you can also find the points cycle rankings for for that cycle that we're in uh, right now as well. Okay, good, good. Um, A question came in from um, D. Rosencrantz in Connecticut. Uh, It says, are there ways for us non-pro to participate in official competition? For example, maybe money, housing, tying flies. Do you have a support yeah, so, group that goes with you? Uh, we we don't normally. The the funny, at least on the tying flies end of things, <laughs> we're, uh, we're most of us are pretty particular about that, and we're uh, we tend to fish flies that come off of our vice and only our vice, <laughs> yeah. unless it's like our teammate that we you know trust. But um, you know we've had volunteers for other things for sure, and so yeah, I mean anybody who wants to help, I'm sure could find. Uh, some willing, <laughs> willing folks who, who want to help, and then when it comes to you know tournaments that are held in anybody's area, you know, uh, any of us are always happy to save money when it comes to uh, to lodging and whatever, um, and stuff, we'll, yeah. we'll yeah places to stay. And I know last year when we had a tournament in Idaho, we stayed with a, a good friend of well, a good customer of mine and good friend of several of us uh, named Fred, and we were at his house in St. Anthony when we had the tournament there, and. He and his wife 
were just angels and took care of us the whole time. So, yeah, things like that do happen, which are much appreciated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, if he also asked if somebody wanted to uh, get a hold of you guys to give talks at local clubs, uh, just contact you individually, or is there some other contact? Yeah, it's probably the easiest way, or you might be able to uh, – I can't remember if there's an email address on the – the web page that just got put up or not, but you can contact either through email. Uh, our team captain, Brett, would answer any of the emails that come through the web page, and also uh, we do have a team Facebook and Instagram page, so you could find either of those, and I'm sure if you send a message, Brett would uh, at least put you in touch with whoever your closest local guy is or someone who you specifically were interested in having to come present. Yeah, great, great. Well, let's take a quick break, and um, when we come back, we'll uh, talk about uh, gear and rigging and finding fish and flies and all kinds of things that uh, maybe you can lend your learning experience to from questions from our audience. So we'll be right back, and we'll, we'll address those questions. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island, and you're only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhiprayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray, C-A-Y-E, Fishing Lodge. Com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Devin Olson about competitive fly fishing. If you'd like to ask Devin a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, so um, let's talk about gear. We've got several questions on um, gear and rigging. You had mentioned that you take several rods into competition. What, what size and weight rods do you bring with you? Well, normally when I go to world championship, I probably bring about a dozen rods with me, and uh, especially if there's a few lake sessions. But you know, if it's a uh, if it's a lake session and a, turn, and a championship, I'm probably fishing a ten foot six weight most of the time. And then if I'm on the river, I it all depends upon the size of fish and the specific techniques that I I you know plan on fishing. Like in Italy last year, most of the fish that we were fishing for in the, the rivers that were smaller on average, and it was uh, really fine tippet were, was important as well. And so I fished mostly two weights the whole time, uh, 10-foot two weights and 10-foot um, two-inch two weights. And then I also had a 9-foot three weight that I had as a, just a dedicated single dry fly rod there but in other tournaments i'll fish 10 or 10 and a half 10 foot 8 inch uh three weights uh for a lot of the the and thing stuff just kind of depends upon what i think is appropriate for the the size of the river and the fish and in each circumstance pretty rare that i'll go much above that at least at, at uh in the competitions because uh, you know unless we have a river that's kicking out a whole bunch of 20-plus-inch fish, um, most of the time I feel pretty darn comfortable with anything like uh, that and under with a three-weight. But, uh, for instance, if I'm doing the same type of thing elsewhere on a trophy trout trip, like I was just in New Zealand back in 
December, and there I was using a 10-foot, 8-inch four weight for most of my year and everything. But, but yeah, three weights and two weights are pretty common, and longer wow, ones for the most light. part. Yeah, yeah, pretty light. What about um, uh, you'd mentioned dry fly fishing, and of course uh, nymphing. Uh, do you ever do any streamer fishing uh, during competition? Yep, and for that, so I'll fish streamers one of two ways. Uh, if you're looking at the more traditional cast and strip type approach. Then uh, usually in nine and a half foot five weight or uh, just my lake rod, my 10 foot six weight, depending upon the size of fish, is what I'll throw streamers on. But a lot of times I just throw streamers on my Euro nipping rigs, and so I'll fish them on a, a three weight, no problem. That's what I've been doing all winter here, and it's it's pretty darn deadly. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, Hugo in Sydney, I'm thinking that I, I, I don't know if that's, Sydney, Australia, or uh, Nebraska. Or his last name. (laughs) (laughs) Or his last name, yeah. Uh, He asked if you would uh, describe the the current leader setup that most uh, competition fly fishers are using these days for rivers. My impression is that the latest development is essentially straight 2X or 3X cider material as leader. What about in windy conditions? So maybe... it, it also pretty complicated. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I guess it depends on specifically what method Hugo's interested in there. Uh, and I talk about this a lot in the gear and chapter or the or the gear and rigging chapter in my book. But but yeah, I mean, I would call it a micro thin leader is what a lot of um, anglers are fishing with a nymph leader these days, where it's just you know all thin material, and that is very common. It's very, very challenging for most people to fish. It takes a lot of practice beforehand to learn how to cast it and actually be accurate. Um, but it works very well. So, yeah, that is that is uh, common on the scene. Also, um, there's still a lot of people that are, are fishing, you know, either thicker versions or tapered versions of, of leaders for nymphing that they can do crossover methods with. So, like, one of the things that I do a lot is uh, fish what I call my modular hero nymphing leader. And much of what I do when I'm fishing that leader is fish a dry dropper on it. And so it just kind of depends upon the method that you're after, but certainly that micro thin leader is pretty common. And I don't really change the leader much based on windy conditions. I'm, I more change the weights of flies that I have and then the angle that I'm fishing at. I try and fish more at an upstream or quartering upstream angle when I'm uh, fishing in windy weather so that I'm not putting my leader um, – kind of in profile to the wind, but more in line with it, and then it's affected less. And if that doesn't do the trick, then I just go to suspension-type methods if I'm nipping uh, with a dry dropper. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Brian Ray in uh, Boring, Oregon, uh, writes in and says, uh, for tight line nymphing, would you prefer a factory-made Euro nymph line or a mono running line to load your reel? Uh, this would assume that the line would fill the guides on your rod would you recommend sticking with loop-to-loop connections or cut them off and use blood knots or nail knots? Uh, so, yeah, two-part question. First first question, I definitely uh, appreciate having a Euro Nymph line, like a dedicated factory Euro Nymph line, especially because I am fishing quite thin leaders these days, uh, sometimes 4X for my entire leader. Uh, so if you try and fill a spool full of that, you get – that in your hands when you're stripping line and trying to fight fish and everything else, and you're going to have either tangles or a whole lot of slippage on in your hands, and it just becomes a nightmare to be able to handle. 
So I much prefer having a Euro nymphing line, a dedicated, you know, like 22,000-inch thick one, like the Cortland line. My Euro nymphing line. And then a leader that's in the, you know, neighborhood of 20 feet total to the end of my slides. Um, and then as to the second question, I definitely, I haven't fished a loop-to-loop in probably 10 years other than on a spay line. Um, they are horrid for, at least for Euro nymphing, because your leader and line connection is going in and out of your guys every single cast. It's not like when you are fishing a you know a shorter leader where your fly line is going to be out your rod almost the entire time, except when you land a fish or just strip it in to do something. Um, when you're hearing anything, that connection goes in and out every single time. So I don't use loop to loop. So I, uh, if I have a monocore line, then yeah, I'll strip the jacket and do a blood knot straight to my uh, leader or with uh, braided corn lines, I will do a super loose slice. Okay. Um, Larry in Pinedale, Wyoming's question is to do with seeing uh, the cider in certain light conditions. He says which he has difficulty with sometimes. I'm, he's wondering if the, adding some of the new white material, colored cider material, would help. Any, any tips? So um, white can, can help in certain conditions. Um, white to me is more it's more of a benefit if I'm fishing like really really clear water and I just want to avoid spooking fish so I'll fish white a lot of times for like spring creeks or really clear tailwaters or, or like the whole time I was in New Zealand if, if I was Euro nymphing there then I was fishing a white leader essentially um, for, I would say though as far as like helping you see your cider there's some other things you can do. there are uh, like there's a product called Scafar's Neon Wax that um, you can add to your cider. So it's basically just an even more visible um, paste that you can add to your cider to, in little like spots to help you hot spot the end of it so that you can see it. You can also add some extra knots into your cider and leave a tag off of that knot that's longer so that you have both a, your cider that's you know, running down your leader, but also some material that's standing out perpendicular to it to help you pick up that cider. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, you can just mess around with your diameter of cider material. The thicker material is always going to be easier for most people to see than thinner stuff. So if uh, visibility is really a challenge for you, then gravitate towards the larger side of the spectrum for cider material. Okay, okay. Um, Rick Takahashi in Colorado, uh, he says, is there any specific type of leader material you prefer for your leaders? Uh, your thoughts on using fluorocarbon tippet materials, and what do you use for making ciders? So you kind of talked about ciders. Yeah. Um, so it depends upon the diameter of cider that, that I'm after. Um, if I'm into thicker type material than I normally I'll use the Cortland bicolor, or they're white, or they're super yellow a lot. And then if I'm into thinner material, uh, like uh, 3X and smaller, because they only make it down to 2X, then I'll go to the Rio or the Umqua cider material. So mostly, you know, kind of factory available material specifically for that purpose. And then I also, I do use fluorocarbon for my tippet, uh, mainly just for the abrasion resistance properties and things like that as much as anything. I swapped back and forth between nylon and fluoro for a long time, and I, I can't really say that 
my catch rate was held back by, by having nylon. But what fluoro kind of afforded me was just long longevity of the rig, um, especially when you're nymphing and coming in contact with rocks and snags or, you know, making an errand cast into to the trees behind you or something like that. Uh, the fluoro tends to be, you know, a little more durable in that situation and, and avoid abrasion resistance uh, or has abrasion resistance. So that's that's why I use fluoro most of the time. Okay. Um, Jim Lewis in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, wrote in. He says, I got your new book and both videos devoting 2019 season to learn technique. Uh, he says, what is the main difference, feel, castability, et cetera, in your view between uh, your rig set up in the video and Lance's. Well, I'm assuming he's talking about just the two liters that we 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 just gave two simple liter formulas in our first video, and um, the the main difference between them, Lance's has a taper to it in the butt section, whereas mine is a level 20 pound uh, butt section in that formula. So it's pretty much like the modular liter that I that I have. Uh, talked about later with a few minor exceptions. Um, the main difference in between them is two things um, because of that, that taper. Number one, my formula doesn't have knots in the butt section so that it slides through the guides easier. That flat butt section also tends to kind of overpower the turnover on it, for at least for how thin the leader is. So you get kind of a hard kick with uh, that leader, and it's on purpose. So that if I want to do, um, you know, some sort of tuck cast or really kick over a dry dropper rig uh, without a, having to punch it, then that that thicker level uh, butt section kind of over-transfers the energy towards the end of the leader. Whereas because of the taper in Lance's formula, his kicks over a little nicer. <laughs> um, from a, a casting perspective, um, you know, with typical turnover that you might be used to from a regular tapered leader, his leader is going to perform more like that. So if you want your your rig to land um, with kind of even turnover where you can land it delicately and softly in a horizontal fashion, then his leader does that better. Um, uh, so, you know, I would say it just depends upon the properties you want out of it, but that's how I'd, I would describe the differences between the formulas we had in, in our first video in Modern Nymphing. Okay. Uh, we've got some questions uh, coming in, a lot of questions coming in on the Internet. Uh, let me throw a couple at you. Uh, any tips? Uh, this is Mike in Madison, Connecticut. Any tips on how to choose tippet length for a piece of water? And is it possible to lose contact with your flies if your tippet is too long? Um, to answer the second part of that, yes, it is possible to lose contact, especially if you're fishing pretty light flies. So one of the things that I have um, kind of done a little more over the last year or so, especially after fishing with uh, Julian from the French team, is I have been fishing uh, shorter tippet than I was previously. Um, I would just say, to, to keep it simple, try and keep your tippet to one and a half times the depth of the water and, and not really any more than that. Now, obviously, as you're going to be moving around, you're going to be going to a bunch of different depths so that you're not going to be wanting to change tippet, you know, all the time. So if you kind of have a, you know, an average depth in the piece of water that you have in front of you that you think you're going to fish, try and set it to where you're a one and a half times that depth. Um, and then from there, you may just do a little bit of experimentation and 
I'll splice in, you know, 10 inches of tippet or 12 inches of tippet every once in a while in between my my tippet ring at the end of my cider and the rest of my tippet if I need to go a lot deeper for a pool. And likewise, you know, I'll chop some out if I'm going to fish a long pocket water or riffle stretch that's really shallow. But, you know, if you can hit on average around that one and a half times the depth of the water mark, then you're probably in the, the right ballpark. Uh, okay. And, okay, let's see. We've got... Uh... Uh, says uh, Ethan Ram in New Milford, Connecticut. In your recent blog on uh, rigs for sight fishing, you shared your modular sight fishing leader, which was interesting because it did not include a cider and consisted of multiple segments. My questions are, did you exclude a cider because of concern for spooking fish? And two, what did you use to detect strikes, or were you able to see the fish take given the clarity of the water? And three, did you put UV resin over the leader section knots? Um, okay, so uh, let me take those three. Remind me if I don't answer them. Sure, we go sure. So, yep. <laughs> so as far as the cider goes, in that specific situation, yes, I was worried about spooking fish. I was fishing uh, in New Zealand where, you know, the water can look like air at times. And so I was wanting, you know, nothing that would, signal to the fish that a leader was coming their way. So I didn't use the cider, at least when I was casting at different at distance with that sight fishing rig. I did do some urine hunting while I was there, but, you know, that was I also shared that rig. Um, so, yes, uh, cider was eliminated because of that. However, if you're at home and it's kind of more like medium clarity water or, or um, you know, you can partially see fish but not fully, then... I think most of the time you could get away easily with substituting one of those sections of the chameleon that I had in there with some cider to help you pick it up in the water. And, in fact, one of the guys I learned a little bit about sight fishing from, uh, his name is Andy Kim, and he's a guide on, I don't know if he still is or not, but at least 15 years ago when I met him, he was a guide on the San Juan in New Mexico, and he had, you know, colored sections in his leader, probably the first time I ever saw, actually, a, a cider-type material. And his leaders were all for sight fishing, and he built them in. So, so play around with it. If you see fish spooking that you're sight fishing to, maybe cut the cider out. If you don't, and they're fine, feel free to put a cider in. But most of the time there, I was um, I was looking at the fish for an indication of my take. So when we were just nymphing, I called it naked nymphing there because I didn't have a cider, and I was just the only thing that was on the rig was nymphs. And so you're you're looking at the fish for an indication of of the take, um, whether it's its mouth opening or just watching it deviate to the side and then come back to its holding line, you know, something like that. Or on that same rig in the article I talked about, I I swapped that out for dry, straight dry flies and for dry dropper on that same rig. And so obviously when I had a dry fly, I could see the fish eat. Or if I was fishing a dry dropper, then the dry was becoming my indicator at that point. And then I think there was one last question, something about... Yeah, last uh, one was... Uh, sense or something. Uh, did you put UV resin over your leader section knots? And no, I never do. And that approach really hasn't ever made sense to me, simply because you're, inc like you're drastically increasing the diameter of your knots by putting that. And so much of what catches in your guides is just having a big bump there. So even if that bump is smooth, so to speak, on the, the surface, it's still a big bump and it's going to run into your guide. So for me, I just focus on 
trimming my knots as flush as possible, and all those knots are blood knots instead of uh, like a surgeon's knot in that thicker material, mainly because that the the blood knot is a smoother knot to go through your guides than a lumpier you know surgeon's knot is. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, let's talk about finding fish. What did you learn during the competitions that, that helps you to find more fish in, in your, your local waters or wherever you fish? And uh, in, in doing some of the reading, it seems like um, because of the competition, you now look in more places than you used to. Can you kind of uh, yes, tell us about that? Yeah. Well, really, it, I think it's, a, it's more of having a rig that's allowed me to fish in multiple water types. So historically, before I started competing, I was pretty much like a lot of guys. I was a dive in the little strike indicator nymphor. And uh, one of the things I, I was rereading one of the, the first chapter of the book the other day, and it made me laugh thinking about it because um, I used to fish my local river here that I'd spend all this time on in the winter. And a lot of times I caught as many or more fish in the winter as I did during the rest of the year on that same stretch of water, and it was mainly because with that indicator rig, that rig fish, you know, at its best in kind of pools and runs and in, you know, the less complicated water as far as multiple currents going all over the place everywhere. And once once the fish got into that other water type, the rig just didn't perform the same way, regardless of what adjustments I made and all the mending in the world that I could do. So I, I think because of that, I just figured that there weren't very many fish in that other, other water type, you know, or, or those other water types throughout the rest of the year, when, in fact, I just didn't have uh, a method that could target that water well. So once I started Euro-nymphing with longer French-style leaders and things like that, and uh, the indicator got brought out of the question and I had a more direct connection to my flies and, and how I could adjust the way they drift and in the strike detection that I had because of it, I suddenly started finding fish in all sorts of water types, and now I'll go to that same piece of water and I'll catch fish you know, in all sorts of water throughout the summer that they spread out into, and my catch rate through the rest of the year has really picked up a lot because I'm not just relegated to more of that winter-type holding water that I was very good at fishing with an indicator before, but which a lot of the fish had moved out of by the time the water warmed up and they could spread out a bit. Um, so I think the rig and the rigs overall that I've been fishing have, have really just taught me uh, that other fish are elsewhere. But the other thing that, that helps is kind of my biological background as well. I started getting on electrofishing crews back in 2007, I think was the first one that I did. And then all throughout my schooling and, and fishery school and then as a biologist afterwards, you know, I did quite a bit of electrofishing. And if the electrofishing surveys are done right and you avoid spooking the fish um, before you actually do your passes with the survey, then you can see a lot of the water that those fish are coming out of. And by doing those surveys, all of a sudden I, I realized there were fish <laughs> holding and sitting in places that I didn't think fish really inhabited before. And because of that, uh, once I saw that there were so many fish in all those different types of places, I had to come up with a way to catch them there. And um, both through personal experimentation and then from learning from other competition anglers, uh, I've been able to, you know, fish a lot more of the river now than I used to. So what what are some of those places that 
the ordinary fly fisher would overlook? Where should well, we I be just, looking? If, if someone out? wants to go read about, I, I gave a really recent example over the weekend. I was at a local river um, where the water that I was going to go fish, the, the pools and the glides and stuff where I expected to go do some mid-dry fly fishing, uh, they were all packed because I got to the river lake. So I turned around the corner and, and went into a pocket water stretch, and it's not a stretch of water that looked like typical winter holding water, but by finding and drilling down into some of the deeper and slower spots within that, that pocket water stretch, I still caught a lot of fish. So, you know, at all times of the year, you just kind of um, – one of the things I write about a lot in the book is the relation of water temperature to fish, and I, I you know, I recommend – going and, and reading uh, a lot about that because as the fish's metabolism changes and hatches come and go, fish will move in and out of different water types. But basically, if the water is prime, either through, you know, a heavy hatch or good water temperatures, let's say, you know, 50 to 65 degrees in, a, in that range, um, then you're going to find fish all over the place as long as they have just enough water to cover their head and they can find a tiny little nook where they have to spend just a little less energy than the surrounding water. So they could be in they could be in a rapid. I mean, they can be in standing waves, below standing waves. If there's a rock down there, they can stick their, you know, their head behind or their fins behind. So learning to search out a lot of those unlikely spots in heavy water, whether it's, you know, pocket water or... Uh, a fast run or just even areas within the same water that you've been fishing that um, little nooks and crannies that you haven't delved into before because you just didn't have the rig to do it. Uh, so like yeah. right at the head of a pool, at the drop-off, um, a lot of times fish are right on that lip, but uh, most suspension-type rigs don't work very well in that situation because your flies are trying to drop below that drift while or below that lip of the shelf while your indicator is getting ripped downstream and so it's just pulling it out and not letting your your flies sink into that you know below that shelf so someplace like that or really shallow riffles i mean i've seen all the time i've seen fish in in riffles shoot when i was in new zealand i i caught a whole bunch of four to six seven pound brown trout and riffles there that were 10 inches deep once the the water got you know uh, warmed up enough and the, the bugs got going enough that they felt like they were in feeding mode instead of I'm going to go, you know, have refuge mode. So yeah. being flexible and, and learning when to fish different water types based on temperature and hatches and things like that um, really has has taken my catch rates and my enjoyment of the water a long ways forward because I can now fish so much more in the river than I used to. Yeah. Um Bob Schmidt in Georgia, uh, he says, if there's a hatch going on, do you try to match it or stick with your own nymph-style flies? Um, it depends, either or. Um, and, you know, as long as you're in the, the ballpark of size and shape, I think most of the time beyond that is just kind of extraneous if your presentation is good. That's one of the things that this has taught me. But I still tie imitative flies. And especially when it comes to dry fly fishing, uh, you know, I've been doing lots of, of midge fishing lately and had imitative flies for that and some imitative midge pupa. But the funny thing is, in that blog that I wrote from over the weekend, there was a very much a full midge hatch and swing with not, nothing else uh, hatching. And 
I fished some midge pupa patterns during that and caught some fish on them, but I actually ended up, at least when I was nymphing, uh, I did better on some paradigms and, and betas patterns that definitely were not strictly imitative of what was uh, least featured most heavily in the drift, and I caught plenty of fish on them. So, so yeah, in that sense, uh, I would fish what you're confident with to begin with. Um, if that's traditional Euro-style, you know, attractor or just impressionistic type patterns, uh, go with those. Get them in the zone and make sure you're, you know, in the zone where the fish are feeding, working your way from top to bottom. And then if you've gotten to the bottom and you still haven't caught any fish, then you can start sorting through some patterns and maybe an imitative type pattern will, will change things for you. Yeah, good, good. Well, uh, Devin, <laughs> we've run out of time. I still have uh, three pages of questions plus those on the Internet <laughs> that we didn't get to. So uh, maybe well, another time. Well, I apologize time. for <laughs> to, uh, didn't get my questions answered because I'm a jibber-jabber. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. We covered a lot of ground, I think. and uh, But there's so much ground to cover, right? I mean, if uh, you can write a, what is this, uh, you know, um, 200, over 200-plus 200 page book about uh, tactical fly fishing. Uh, we're surely not going to cover it in 90 minutes. So um, suggest everybody get out in there and get uh, get Devin's book. Um, and uh, you can go into a lot more detail than we can here on the show tonight. But you get a quick introduction from what Devin's shared with us tonight about his expertise and uh, some of the tactics. So, uh, so now I hope you have at least learned that Competitive fly fishing has contributed a lot to Devin's experience and, and expertise over the years. It sure, sure sounds like it from here, Devin. So um, I appreciate you, you sharing that tonight. Um, stick with us uh, a few more minutes here. Um, we've got to wrap this up, but I'm going to be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal and a copy of Devin's latest book, Tactical Fly Fishing, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So stick with us a couple more minutes. We're going to do those giveaways. And uh, Devin, stay with us, too, because I want you to help me with uh, make sure I get the right answer to my question. So, uh, All right. We'll be right back. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and uh, two million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org to learn more and to get involved. Again, it's SaveBristolBay.org. Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight, take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our home page that... Uh, the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give away a few prizes, and uh, the winners are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late, but make sure you do so for our next show. Uh, you don't want to miss out on uh, a chance to win one of these great prizes we have to offer. So if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with the information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Uh, if you're not a member, become a member. It's a great organization to support, and it is an international organization as well. Um, so our, uh, let's fire up the database here and do our selection. 
And it looks like uh, John Orter, Orter in Missouri. Uh, you're the winner of that one-year membership to uh, FFI, Five Fishers International. So congratulations, John, and thanks for playing. Um, our next uh, giveaway is a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, but you can learn more about it at amatobooks.com. And Amato Books has all kinds of uh, books and periodicals relating to fly fishing. So check them out. And our winner for that is Pablo Signori. Pablo Signori in California. So congratulations, Pablo, on that. And we'll get you hooked up with that subscription. So I'm sure you'll enjoy it, and congratulations on that. So now we'll give away a copy of Devin's latest book, uh, Tactical Fly Fishing, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Stackpole has always been a great publisher for um, books in the fly fishing realm and um, uh, a great place to check out uh, additional books on, on fly fishing. So uh, look to Stackpole uh, as your, your, your publisher for fly fishing. And um, let's see here. Uh, I'll just make the question pretty simple tonight. We've got a lot of people on the call. So uh, uh, when Devin was talking about length of tippet, what is his guide for setting the length of his tippet? Uh, put that in. You'll be, if you're the first one, you'll be the winner of tactical fly fishing. Lessons learned from competitive competition for all anglers. So, again, um, question is, how does uh, Devin determine the length for his tippet to start out with when, when uh, fishing? water. Okay, Devin, I'm just going, refreshing here, looking uh, for a winner here, and um, looks like we have a winner in uh, Hugo in Washington, D.C., Lon, well, I can't tell from your email what your last name is, but uh, Hugo, one and a half times the length of the average water, is that is that it, uh, Devin? Yep, that's pretty good. That's the answer we're looking for. Okay, good. Hugo, um, give me a last name. Uh, give me a mailing address, and we'll get that book uh, shipped out to you, and I know you'll enjoy it. Uh, for those of you that didn't win, uh, just click on that link on our homepage and go buy Devin's book on Amazon, and uh, it'll be well worth your money and your time to, to, to go through that. So, uh, Devin, hey, again, I appreciate you being on with us. Uh, we've had you on the show multiple times. It's always been a pleasure. And there's, uh, as I can tell, much more information in your, that mind of yours that you need to share, so we'll have to do it again sometime. <laughs> well, it's, it's not hard to get me jazzed up when I'm talking about fishing, Roger. So. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having well, me on again. Yeah, you're welcome, and uh, great having you. Hopefully, everybody, uh, you found the archive on our website. If you haven't, uh, just look for the link on the top-line menu. In the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 285 shows, I believe, now. Uh, so just search by keyword phrase, like trout, tarpon, Madison River, whatever you want to search for, and uh, your own nymphing, uh, and you'll find the shows and, and previous shows I've done with Devin as well. So uh, check that out. And by the way, I, I forgot to mention Hugo. Um, just fill out that information in the same form that you filled out the answer to the show and to the question uh, that we asked, and uh, I'll get the information that way. Our next broadcast will be on March 6th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and on that show I'll interview Drew Chacon, and our topic for the show will be saltwater fly pattern development. 
Drew has developed and improved many saltwater fly patterns during his professional fly tying career. Learn how Drew approaches his fly design from both a creative and a functional aspect. Join us and pick his brain about techniques, materials, and testing. We'd also like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future products. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.